Hi everyone and welcome to Pro Bono Pod. We are so excited to launch our very first episode. Pro Bono Pod is a podcast by us, the KCL Pro Bono Society, one of the largest student-run pro bono organisations in the UK. I'm Emma, the co-president and your host for today. Each month, you can expect episodes led by our committee that dive into vital questions facing the law and charities. From disability awareness to gender equality, we'll be exploring the forces shaping our future. For each episode, we'll be joined by lawyers, academics, charities, NGOs, activists and more. Our guests will answer these vital questions, sharing their experiences, career journeys and predictions for the future. Finally, they'll share how you can get involved, from industry tips to work opportunities. Today, our focus is climate, or more specifically, climate justice. Lawyers and charities both have crucial roles to play in the fight against climate change. I'm fortunate enough to be joined by Didem, PhD student at King's College London, and Katia, programme manager at the charity Ecoactive. Hello, thank you, um, Emma. So nice to be here in this first session. Thanks for having me too, Emma. Um, nice to meet you both. And we're really excited to be part of your first podcast. Didem and Katia are united in their efforts to fight climate change. They play different roles, with Didem leading groundbreaking research and Katia raising awareness amongst young people. The urgency of climate change means that everyone has a role to play. There is a vast array of environmental issues before us, and this can feel overwhelming. Let's start by looking at environmental law, in light of the recent IPCC report. In August, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change announced that we have reached Code Red for human-driven global heating. The UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres said that the alarm bells are deafening and the evidence is irrefutable, with many irreversible changes already in motion. What can the law do? How can we regulate polluting activity and mobilise action on a global scale? Didem researches international law, agriculture and food security. She's highly familiar with our existing human-centric legal framework and has asked whether we need an ecological perspective. Didem, what inspired you to start your research? Um, when I first started, I was looking into social movements led by farmers' organizations initiated in Latin America. This organization called La Via Campesina inspired me a lot. Of course, I wasn't really familiar with social legal studies, and there were so many interesting research around this area done by anthropologists and other social researchers. So starting from food sovereignty, I kind of end up in a doctrinal approach, but still having that activist sense of, okay, how can law work to fix the global food system that is creating almost 24% of the global emissions what could be the role of law in this context? Agriculture is always at the crossroads with trade and finance, so it's almost untouchable. And even when we look at the trade mechanisms like WTO, agriculture was the last part that was integrated into the global system. Oh, wow, I didn't um, know that. Yeah, it was really late. States were very reluctant because it's such a national matter. Ah, I see. Um, yeah, every state has their own approach to agriculture, and it's so unique to your 
climactic circumstances, your your um, population, and so many things. So it's kind of understandable, but still, when we see how many problems it could create for our future, so um, I thought environmental law, looking from like more doctrinal environmental law approach to agriculture, could be a very niche point to add. Yeah, that's how I started. (laughs) That's great to hear. And I had no idea that agriculture was such an afterthought in the law. It makes no sense, especially given, like you said, the contribution to global emissions. It's such an integral and essential part of climate change that it's really shocking that the law hasn't addressed it up to now. So it sounds like your research does touch on that niche point. And I suppose then our traditional approach to international law is somewhat in conflict with your studies and how the agricultural system works. And you've spoken before about the law having a very human-centric focus. Could you tell us a bit more about your ecological perspective? Where I see it, the foundations of international law very much based on permanent sovereignty over natural resources, also property rights and more individualized human rights are central to infinite growth, the need urge to develop, to move on. And that kind of development-centric notions and individual notions of law, kind of exclusive rights, don't really allow us to see like the common perspective, the ecological perspective of the resources we use. So I think ecological perspectives to the foundations of law kind of allow us to see the common ground. That's fascinating. Thank you. And thank you for explaining such a complex concept to our listeners, because ecology is something as primarily law students and students in general, we haven't particularly come across. So it's fascinating to hear about that. Um, interdisciplinary focus that you've adopted. I suppose then this has influenced your most recent work. Could you tell us a bit about the most recent paper you've been working on? We are working on a a paper for the um, American Society of International Law Research Forum with an Australian friend. We basically argue that international law doesn't allow this ecological basis to come in very easily. For my case study within the paper, I look at the uh, international treaty uh, used for food and agriculture. And this is a very innovative treaty. So it builds a common pool resource management system and trying to make accessible these uh, crop resources through a common pool system. But it mainly does this through private rights. And so it also has a contractual basis, basically, that is inherited from the Convention on Biological Diversity. And so it's still very limited in the sense that it doesn't allow valuing the non-tradable aspects of food. When we produce food, it also has our culture in it, uh, our heritage and our social preferences, And so it doesn't really capture this kind of non-tradable aspects because it's mainly taking food through contractual and private rights. That's fascinating. And it connects to what you said previously about that human-centric focus that we have to the law and that we value traditionally resources and those things that make us money and that we can trade. So those intangible cultural aspects to agriculture, our food 
um, they definitely deserve a greater voice within the law. Um, so thank you for telling us about that. And it's something that should help in our fight against climate change. I'm sure you'll both agree. And that we need to give voices and value, essentially, to those um, aspects of our environment that we want to preserve, um, the natural world. And I think it's time now to leave the international stage and zoom in to our local community. Katya is part of Ecoactive, an innovative education charity based in London. It is known for its hands-on practical approach to the complex issues of sustainability. Their mission is to create a world where young people and communities are agents of change. They do so by leading fun and engaging workshops in schools, parks and community gardens. Katia, could you tell us more about your mission and what you do to achieve it? Yes. So, as you said, our mission is to work with communities and trying to help them become as resilient and empowered as possible and therefore able to take action on global problems such as sustainability or climate change. And the way we do it is working with community groups, with schools, especially public schools um, and local authorities sometimes, depending on what funding we receive. And we do uh, that by trying to teach complex problems such as sustainability, how the transition is going to happen, but through an experiential approach, through hands-on and practical activities or projects that lead young people and the people involved to uh, real action and to see a real impact of what we try to uh, learn. Yeah, that's fascinating. It presents these um, important facts and awareness in a way that's fun and hopefully uh, the students learn therefore a lot easier and more organically. That sounds like an, a brilliant approach. But how about yourself? How did you first get involved with Ecoactive? So I started working as a volunteer for Ecoactive as soon as I graduated and I moved to London. I was interested in education because I like teaching, but in the same time, I wanted to tackle climate change as one of the biggest challenges we ever had. So I started like that and I was a volunteer for a while and then I became a session worker. And I combined my freelancing work there with part-time jobs in the environmental and training sector. So this was uh, on for a couple of years until... I became a permanent staff member at Ecoactive. Oh, that's brilliant to hear about your journey and particularly that it arose from volunteering as that's something that's really easy for students to get involved with. And it's just so inspiring to hear about how your career grew from there. Moving on, um, could you tell us about um, any experience of yours that stands out, particularly a student or a school that has stayed with you and left an impression? Yes, yeah, so that's a nice question that brings memory back. Um, a lot of our work focused on waste prevention, especially in the past, because yeah. public funding um, had a big interest in increasing recycling rates and decreasing the amount of waste that we produce. And in 2019, I was leading a program on waste education across 14 schools in North London. So the program work, worked in a way that we would measure the amount of waste that the school produced at the beginning mm -hmm. and the amount of waste that they produce by the end of the project. And in I the meantime, see. we would implement solutions and teach anything that could help 
help the school through the children because we work with children mostly. So children raise their ideas and decide what they want to change in school. But this school started as one of the worst at the beginning with one of the highest amount of waste. And after a term, they were the best. They reduced more than 50% of their waste and they became a role model. And it's interesting because sometimes it's difficult with our job which is about behavior change, it takes time and we need to be very patient because changing habits and educating is a slow process. And every time I question if I'm doing my job effectively enough, then Mm. I think back to this school where it was obvious that we were having a big impact and we were helping the school to make a real change. Because I've often seen, and from my own experience at schools and so on, they're often quite wasteful in their approach to recycling and even food waste, um, which (laughs) links back to what Didam was saying. So, yeah, that's that's really interesting that your history has grown from that and um, it sounds like you've been doing kind of bigger and more important work ever since. Yeah, that's brilliant. And it's so inspiring to hear about their progress, particularly as they started off as one of the worst schools. Like you said, it shows that your work is valuable and it's making a real tangible change because you're able to track the progress um, so effectively over time. And it relates to the the mission of Ecoactive about putting children at the centre stage and instilling the change within themselves as agents of that change. And you're right, behavioural change takes time. Um, It's going to progress and improve. But to see that progress in such a short period uh, within the structure of an organisation, I think is incredibly inspiring. So thank you for telling us about that. But, um, you know, with all your successes, there must be challenges along the way. What are the main obstacles to inspiring young people about the climate? And from your experience, how can we overcome them? First problem is knowledge. Okay. We, we're not teaching enough. Um, if we learn about if young people learn about it, they might learn it in the wrong way because oh, the way how it's channeled through mainstream media is very dom- dramatic, very disempowering, um, terrifying sometimes. So what we try to do is to teach, yes, all the knowledge, the content behind the science, behind climate change and the crisis, because we need that. We need to understand what's happening in order to be able to take action on it. But then we try to dedicate as much time as we can to exploring solutions and what is already out there, what is happening out there that is tackling, that is already being done to solve this problem. And in this way, you shift the perspective on on the crisis from only focusing on problems which seem unsolvable because of course yes. it's very complex to actually being already part of the solution by thinking and visualizing what it is that we want to see instead in the future and how do we get there. We hear about catastrophes every day in all the media, but then you're often left disempowered because what can you do about wildfires there, flooding there, migration here? So what? And as a young person, it's very easy to feel powerless, especially because that's the other problem. Young people we find are very interested, very engaged, uh, very concerned. But what's the problem? Most of them, especially until a certain age, they don't have the power to make changes because that power lies with older generations, the ones that have decision-making power. And those are often less concerned, less engaged, 
and less worried for that. Mm. So the frustration that I think young people feel is not having that voice, the power of action to change, to challenge systems. And so I think it's really important. That's what we try to do, to give them the space, the voice to take that action, to be heard, but also to do things. I understand. That's so inspiring. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of, Didam, what you research in terms of the law and its focus on the short-term rather than longer-term problems. Because you're right, our system is fundamentally out of sync with the approach that we need. And that can make young people especially feel incredibly powerless. It's a, a feeling that I know I relate to, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners do as well. So it's great that you tackle that head on. Uh, you look at that powerlessness and you try and give young people a voice. That's brilliant. And also how you address the complexity of the problem, because that's another challenge, like you said. Um, and it relates also to what DDEM does, because the, re the complex research is essential. These problems aren't easy to solve otherwise. You know, we would have made more progress than we have. So on the one hand, um, like DDEM's research, we need to look into these complex issues and tease them out and write papers that explore them at a high level. But at the same time, we need to translate that in a way that students can understand and learn from so that they're equipped for the future. Exactly. That's fascinating. Thank you so much for telling us about that. And now I'd like to open up the floor and hear both of your thoughts on the law, charities and climate change. So I thought we'd start with the broadest question of them all. What political, legal and personal challenges does climate change give rise to? Perhaps, uh, Didem, you could start on that one. Law is following behind the political and social progress. It always comes behind and is more stable and more relying on the precedent. Yeah, and of course, that's how the whole system is designed. Both common law and civil law countries, it could apply. And so law needs to evolve like continuously in order to tackle such a like a dynamic issue like climate change absolutely and so we and yes. so playing with different like bottom-up top-down approaches law tries to evolve trying to respond to climate change in innovative ways and I think charities um, can be a big part of it because of the like potential standing and carrying that um, political almost activist stance through various cases. I see. Now that's great to hear about because you're right, the law is traditionally very slow to change, even though it touches on some of these really important political, personal um, problems within society. It is often quite slow to keep up. So it's really interesting to hear about those different mechanisms as well, those different approaches that might allow us to update the law to such dynamic and evolving problems such as climate change, particularly the role um, of kind of a top-down approach that we might legislate, introduce new laws that bind individuals and companies. But then again, touching again on the role of charities, we might adopt a bottom-up approach and bring cases individually to touch on those personal problems that happen, um, such as it can, I suppose it can range from anyone who's lost their homes due to natural disasters to perhaps that right to food um, and the detrimental impact on human rights. So yes, it's, it's great to hear about those two different approaches that might allow us to evolve the law and to keep up in pace. But it's not just the law that's impacted by climate change. Um, there are vast political and personal challenges too. Um, Katya, I was wondering whether you had any other thoughts on 
perhaps from your own experience, some personal challenges that you've encountered from climate change? Yeah, so um, linking to what you were just discussing, um, as you say, the law changes very slowly. So does the economy, the economic system that we have to shift. It's exactly the same problem. Um, And I've had this discussion uncountable times. What's more effective, top-down or bottom-up action? And I personally chose to work with the grassroots field and do the bottom-up because I believe the big push to change the top very often comes from the bottom. Of course, they work together, but charities help with grassroots movements um, to push that further and to do it more quickly. Whether it is through litigation, whether it is because people individually take their case. Um, I'm thinking of ecocide, for example, the movement that wants to make ecocide a crime, an international crime. These are all movements that come from the people and charities usually are that place that give the people the space and the voice to do mm-hmm. that. And then through that, they can create precedents or different mindsets to approach those problems. Because before ecocide, I have never thought about, actually, we should have a law punishing whoever, whatever is destroying ecosystems. Because yeah, as you right. were saying, our legal system is so individually focused or profit, well, the economic system is profit-oriented, we're just used to that mindset where natural resources are externalities, they're not included in the cost that we pay, right? So having those cases bring also a different perspective to scenarios that we used to consider in a different way. Mm. So in this sense, what charities do they give that space and they create that momentum that allow people, the bottom people, to speak up and to give a push to the top, which otherwise would never change. I see. Now that is eye-opening. And you're right that charities are often a space for people to unite under a common focus. So it's brilliant to hear that that's something that you've experienced yourself. and it's tangible change that arises from a few minds that do think alike. Even though charities are doing incredibly important work here and not just the practical, but also that behavioural change that's helping to solve that crisis of identity and what we value, it's also very complex and they don't always succeed, um, even in bringing cases. And this might be a concept that our listeners aren't totally familiar with, particularly if you've not studied the law before, but not just anyone can go to court. Uh, you have to have a reason to do so and certain rights that allow you to bring an action and hold companies to accounts or politicians, whole countries. Actually, I was just wondering, Didem, could you tell us a bit more about standing? What does that mean? Just so our listeners are aware of the challenges that charities often face in bringing actions in the first place. I think both in the UK and uh, the US, um, this issue of who has standing when it comes to um, collective issues, issues that relate to public interest, is a huge dispute. So I was recently looking at this case from the US, our children's trust, Juliana versus the um, uh, government. 
in this case particularly, but also in many other climate change cases, when a trust or a charity or NGOs bring a case on the basis of the government violated their constitutional rights or like individual rights, because it didn't respond to climate change sufficiently, this issue comes up that the right they are defending is not actually individual. They're talking about their right to freedom, their right to a healthy ecosystem, but it touches upon like future generations. And it's not only uh, between present and future generations. It's also um, many discussions that are going on around like um, like non-human entities. Can they have standing? Um, who can represent a tree, for example? That's a, um, <laughs> yeah, you're right. It sounds absurd, but these are vital questions. Yeah. Because if we are to protect the environment, we need to represent them somehow. And that's an incredibly exciting concept, the thought of giving rights to non-human entities. And it's something that people might have explored, perhaps of technology, AI. There are so many different influences now that govern how we organise society and what we value. So that's really interesting. And I appreciate you explaining standing because it's a, it's a concept I know in my public law studies I have struggled to understand. And I'm sure anyone else that's studied the law has seen it similarly. And that might not be our fault. It might just be that it's complicated because we prioritise people whose rights have been directly affected. And there's so much in that statement. It's individuals who have been impacted directly, but that's not always what we want to protect. Um, so it doesn't make sense often. So that's really interesting. Uh, criticism I've often heard of lawyers is that we're quite narrowly focused <laughs> and that we know our laws, um, but we don't often think beyond them in a lateral manner. So it's great to think outside the box and what could be changed and to challenge directly how we've been thinking for centuries. And you've identified so many tensions there, particularly between generations, because you're right, it's such a future-oriented problem. It connects to what um, a former Bank of England governor, Mark Carney, has identified as the tragedy of the horizon and that the problem is these risks are coming up in the future and we don't take adequate account of them now. We don't value them enough. It's not important to us nowadays um, such that we would, would want to give rights to the environment to protect them in the longer term. So, it's yeah, it's, it's an essential challenge that the law will have to adapt to. But also, yeah, I, I, go was, ahead. I was thinking, I guess it's also very difficult to localize who is responsible, right? Mm. Because a government might be held responsible for emissions, but our emissions go into the atmosphere. They travel around. It's not that they just stay in our geographic area. So where do we put that border to actually decide? And who do we call <laughs> to be responsible for Everyone is responsible, all governments, all international entities, all corporations are responsible because it's such a yes. global problem. Yeah, you're so right. So we need to tackle that complexity head on and address those challenges. Otherwise, it goes back to that powerlessness that otherwise we'd feel, especially as heading towards COP26, the next biggest international conference. Mm. It looks like so many countries aren't going to reach their targets. At least they're not on track at the moment. And that can be very depressing. Um, so it's important to try and look at that with clarity, transparency, and talk about how we'll hold those people to account. Because you're right, talking about standing is one problem. So who is affected? How do you represent them? 
But just as important, if not more so, is who's causing the problem? Who is the defendant? Who do we hold to account? And yeah, you've you've given some thought on, on who might be responsible. But I was wondering if you guys have any other thoughts on who else we could hold to account and how we might do so. Are we looking more at the companies who produce emissions on an absolutely vast scale, particularly within the energy sector, or countries themselves, governments, or even international um, organisations and those at another level still? Because you're right, at every level, from the individual to the supranational, we're all responsible for this. So... Who do we hold to account and how? Yeah, um, I think international law tries to respond through various experimentations. Our understanding of constitutional rights are evolving. We have new um, doctrines like coming from the Rio Declaration, common but differentiated responsibilities. Oh, that's interesting. I've not heard of that before. Each actor has a role to play, but that will depend on their power and circumstances. Yes. Um, I think it it's really valuable to have this flexible systems that we could adapt, like we have through the Paris Agreement, the nationally determined um, commitments contributions. Yes. Law can only act in, until a certain point. Uh, yeah. In, in, in terms of enforceability, I think it's really important to have like a self-binding mechanism okay. to have realistic goals to tackle climate change. Um, otherwise, um, we could, of, co- of course, have very ambitious goals like sustainable development goals, but yes. we will always fall behind. And then yeah, inevitably. You're right, it's a trade-off. We do need ambitious goals because we have a huge issue to tackle, but at the same time, like we need to be able to mould those goals to particular countries and circumstances because every country is different. They have cultures, their people have different needs and wants, and we need to be able to combine those international lofty goals with the reality in each country. So that's interesting. I'd, I'd not really considered self-binding commitments in such a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sounds like they might offer us the flexibility that we need. At the same time, though, are we doing enough? Is it enough to be able to say, okay, that's what I want to achieve within 50 years, when it might not match directly to what we actually need to achieve if we're going to avoid that code red that Antonio Guterres has identified. Katia, yeah. what do you think? Is it enough? Yeah, I was I was wondering exactly that. Um, it makes sense, obviously, to have self-bonding mechanisms that allow a country to be realistic with what's possible because, um, yeah, it's easy to say, let's go net zero in 10 years. It's not possible. It's not going to happen. However, at the same time, there is an urgency out there which will not be um, embraced in yes. uh, self-bonding mechanisms sometimes because it's easy for government, I think, to just step back because what, what happens <coughs> is that any any political party, any um, politician that we vote, that we choose to vote, as an interest in short-term goals, obviously. Yes. Um, and the changes that we need to embrace that urgency on climate change, in at first, they will be very unpopular, obviously, yes. because they will put of cap, course. they will put sanctions, they will put limitations on companies. And so anyone who rules has to be brave to decide to do that 
even though it might become very unpopular. Yeah. Because in the long term, that's what will work better. Mm. It's a bit like a medicine. Now, the later we take it, the harder it is to heal, in a sense. That's a fascinating analogy. And I suppose then we've spoken about those international frameworks. That is one of the largest political challenges that we identified at the beginning. It's whether the political change will actually occur at both the national and international level. You've spoken a bit about that grassroots change, and I think that's something that I find super empowering. So how do we instigate change on a grassroots level? And more importantly, is international cooperation and activism more effective than efforts in local communities? They're not. One one is not more important than the other. They, yeah. they work together. It's, again, that idea that it's at both levels and they are reciprocal. There is this re- reciprocal relationship between what happens at the bottom that pushes the top and the top develops and changes uh, according to it, but in the same oh, time can influence the bottom. So no, I think that's a great way to put it and something that I find incredibly inspiring. It's not a complete disconnect between the international and the local. In fact, there's a feedback loop between them and hopefully the cooperation between those two different levels can help to catalyze some change. And it just means it all it connects to what I was saying at the beginning that both of you today have roles to play in our fight against climate change. They're very different roles. We're investigating the international framework and the incentives, the law at the highest level that govern our basic human rights, but also then instilling that education within young people and instilling change at the grassroots within local communities. If they can meet in the middle, then that's exactly what we're aiming for. I would also say it starts with everyone. It starts with me, it starts with you, and I would encourage everyone to remind themselves that every action that we do on a daily basis really matters for climate change because it's not true that as individuals we don't have an impact because it's through that impact that I can start with myself and then influencing someone else who then influences someone else that we create a ripple effect which then can push the bottom to change. Yeah. So it's really as if I'm a drop in the ocean, but together with many other drops, I make that wave that can push yes. the change. Um, no, I think th- what Katya kind of explained is exactly how um, I was inspired to um, dedicate my research in this field. I do agree that there is this triggering mechanism coming from the bottom and grassroots um, organizations, farmers coalitions, they they would protect their way of adapting to the climate because it's not always um, up to science. Traditional knowledge and farmers accumulated knowledge um, can contribute massively to um, tackling climate change issues. Mm-hmm. That's really opened my eyes because I came into this discussion thinking that as inspiring as grassroots movements are and as importantly as they are to local communities, I was so sure that those with the power at the government and international levels, that's where the change really needed to be and that's where it needed to start because it's just it's such a large problem that to try and tackle it as an individual just feels impossible. I find it inspiring. There's more change that we could instill in terms of 
local movements and that is exactly why we all need to get involved. So thank you both. Um, I'm sure our listeners loved hearing your thoughts on these vital questions. And we'd like to end this podcast, as we will each of the episodes, with talking about how we're going to take that action. So many of our listeners are students at the very beginning of their careers. And we're also those most affected by climate change as we're inheriting a world that has been irreversibly damaged. Is there anything we can do? Or in other words, what powers do we have? So let's talk practical tips for how students can make a difference. How can university students get involved with EcoActive? Um, so you can volunteer for us. Um, yes. We're actually actively looking for some help with social oh, media, with fundraising. So everyone is very welcome. We usually have students who complete internships with us for a couple of months or even more. Um, volunteering is quite useful for charities because, of course, uh, they get support from, yeah. from volunteers and volunteers are incredibly important. But it's also usually very valuable for students because it gives them an idea of what it means to work in that sector. So you can definitely contact us. You can also support sessions uh, when we go into schools um, and everything is possible once um, you, you volunteer for us. So that's one way to get involved. Yeah. Okay. brilliant. I'm sure lots of our listeners will be in contact. That sounds like a great opportunity, particularly if they can use their skills, perhaps in social media promotion, but also uh, working with schools directly because some of that is from my experience the most rewarding and it's great to hear that that opportunity is open to students who are starting their careers whether that's within the charitable sector or beyond because I've often found it really useful within job interviews and so on to mention the experience I've had through my volunteering it's not something that students would think of directly they're often focused on legal work experience and I suppose their academics but actually in interviews, I've spoken most about the volunteering that I've done because I've met some really interesting people and learned the most through working in teams and making an impact as much as I can. And you're right, it's the things that we care about. So it's, it's great to know that we can get involved. So I think that's it for our first episode of Pro Bono Pod. Thank you to both of our guest speakers for sharing their thoughts and experiences. I'd also like to thank my committee for working hard behind the scenes and our studio for making this happen. Tune in next month for another conversation about the vital questions facing the law and charities.